That last hymn that we sang, O Heart Bereaved and Lonely, uh, is very appropriate for the context in which our text tonight comes. I, I think this is a passage we're going to look at tonight. Maybe it's a passage you've heard before. It's a famous passage from the book of Isaiah. It starts out, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. One of the great invitation passages in the Bible. One of the great invitations to come and experience God's grace. It's a wonderful passage, but what you need to understand is the second half of the book of Isaiah, everything from chapter 40 on, was spoken in a context in which Isaiah most likely was in hiding. He'd fallen out of favor with the king and the political leadership and the religious leadership in Jerusalem because he'd prophesied the truth and they didn't want to hear the truth. Tradition has it that eventually he was put inside a hollow log and sawn in two. That's what tradition says happened to Isaiah. There is a reference possibly to that in the book of Hebrews where it talks about um, some of the heroes of the faith were sawn, put in logs and sawn in two. And that's most likely a reference to the tradition of what happened to Isaiah. So everything from the second half of the book, chapter 40 to chapter uh, what, 66, is um, spoken basically to Isaiah's disciples, his kind of small group, who kept these words, and when God's people found themselves in exile with all of their hopes crushed, then, then it was time for them to hear the words. And thus, Isaiah 40 begins, Comfort, comfort ye my people. It's like the second half of the book is about comfort coming to people whose whole world has fallen apart. Now, last week we looked at Isaiah 53, and it is really the heart of why Isaiah can proclaim comfort and why Isaiah can issue this kind of invitation, come who are thirsty, come to the waters. We talked last week about what the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, did on the cross, dying for the sins of his people, taking the punishment that they deserved upon himself, And it's based upon that reality that we can have this amazing invitation. God pleads with his people here in Isaiah 55 to come. He pleads with them. He says, why do you waste your money and your labor on stuff that doesn't satisfy? And I don't know if you've ever thought about how remarkable it is that our God pleads with us. Did you ever stop to think about how remarkable that is? It speaks of the humility of God. Imagine that. The creator of all that there is. The Holy One. The sovereign over everything. Condescends and pleads with his people to stop throwing their life away and to come to him. How remarkable. Let's pray the Lord gives us ears to hear this passage as we read. Isaiah 55, start at verse 1. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. 
Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree, and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage, and we pray that you would help us to put all these various thoughts, all these familiar ideas, to put them together and to see what it is that you're teaching us and revealing about yourself through this passage of your Holy Scripture. We pray that you would open our hearts and minds to receive your word as your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love this passage. And we're going to consider it basically in three, three sections. First, we're going to consider the nature of the offer. What is offered here? And then we're going to consider who is it that makes this offer? So we're going to consider the nature of the one who offers. Because any offer is really only as good as the one who offers it. And then we're going to talk about what is offered. What is offered. So we're going to consider the nature of the offer itself, the nature of the one offering and then the nature of what is offered, and feast on it. So look at first at the the nature of the offer itself. The first thing you notice that's fascinating is we're invited to come and to buy, but without money. We're we're, we're come to, and it's a paradox right at the beginning, buy without money. So the first thing we discover about this offer, the nature of this offer, is it's free, but it's not without cost. Now, I know it says in verse 1, it doesn't have cost. <laughs> you who have none, no money, come, buy, and eat. But it also says buy. So how do you put these two ideas together? The key is to understand 
that the price must be paid, but you don't have any money to pay for it. And again, it harkens back to Isaiah 53. Jesus has paid the price. So you must never think that salvation is free in the sense that it doesn't cost anybody anything. The good news of the gospel that Christians celebrate is not that God just woke up one morning and decided to no longer be mad at the world. That he was in a bad mood and then he just sort of got tired of being in a bad mood and he said, I think I'm going to smile at people now. Jesus did not come to teach people that I know God used to be really angry and mean in the Old Testament, but now he's the Father God and he loves us and everybody needs to know this message. That's not the message of Christianity. It's not the message of the Bible. Only the most superficial reading could ever come to that conclusion. After all, it says in the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, our God is a consuming fire. And it says in the Old Testament, where it's supposedly about the the mean, nasty God, that I will shelter you under my wing like a mother hen, right? So it doesn't work, the Old Testament mean God, the New Testament father God. In reality, the heart of Christianity is that what changes God's mind is what he does through Jesus As Paul says in one of his letters, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It's it's a mind-blowing idea that God sent God the Son to take the punishment and the wrath that sin deserved. Therefore, Isaiah and God, through Isaiah, can come, say, come, you who have no money, and get this straight, you have no money. You have nothing to offer God to buy or to deserve what Jesus did. We don't deserve what Jesus did, and yet we're told here that you, are, you have the ability to come With no money. Why? Because the price has been paid. So, the first thing to notice about this gospel invitation is it's free, but it's costly. Grace is not God merely overlooking sin. Grace always honors God's justice. Paul says this in Romans chapter 3. Some classic words, maybe you've heard them. It says this, that God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. Through faith in his blood, he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. In other words, people in the Old Testament, God postponed punishing their sin until Jesus came. And then on the cross, he didn't just pay for all the sins that were going to come after he lived, but he even paid for sins of people who had lived beforehand, who God had postponed punishing their sin until Jesus came. Why? Because there can be no forgiveness without the price being paid. Someone has to pay always for forgiveness. It's the same way with you. For you to forgive somebody, you have to You have to pay. You have to accept it. You have to stop making them pay. And of course, the only way you can do that is if you understand that you're fabulously wealthy, which is the heart of what the gospel says. But that's another message. The free offer of the gospel is free, but it's costly. It's free to us because Jesus paid the price. It's free to us, but it exacts a terrible cost from our Savior. 
And if you weren't here last week, maybe you might be interested in listening to the podcast, um, Belmont RUF podcast, and you can hear that message uh, from Isaiah 53 about what Jesus suffered. So that's the first thing about the nature of the offer. The second is, it fits our need. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes you can learn a lot about what we were made for from the things that God promises. You, you can sort of back your way into understanding what we were made for from the things that God promises because sometimes we have a very skewed idea of what we need. And we live in a world where people are very willing to, to quickly offer to you and to suggest to you all kinds of things that you need. You need a break today. You need more time. You need more money. You need some kind of financial security. You need a job when you graduate school. You need all kinds of things the world will tell you. But look at what God says you need. What does God say you need? Well, you need to eat. And, and not only do you need to eat, but you need to enjoy and delight. Notice this. He doesn't say, I've provided bread and water so that you can have just what you need for bare minimum sustenance. God tells us something about what we need in what he gives and offers to us. You need more than just bare sustenance. You need to delight. And God says, I've come to give you not just bread and water, not just sort of K-rations, but I've come to give you the richest affair, wine and milk. I know that makes some Christians uncomfortable that God would promise to give wine and call it the richest affair. I know when we made those Indelible Grace CDs, the second album, um, we were kicking around titles. And, and one of the titles that was thrown out that I thought was a great title is a line from the hymn, Sands of the Sands of Time Are Sinking. And it talks in there about how he brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. And we, and we wanted to call that album House of Wine, but we figured it would never get into Lifeway. And, and so we just thought maybe, you know, we probably shouldn't do that. So instead we called it Pilgrim Days, which, you know, everybody says they like. Not many people actually like that experience, at least in modern Christianity. But it was better than House of Wine, I guess. But do you understand, when you throw out the idea of wine, you end up, I think, sometimes subtly communicating that all we really need is the bare minimum to survive, and we should just be content with that. And God says, no, no, I'm giving you the best stuff. Do you remember the first public miracle that Jesus did? Do you remember what it was? It was at a wedding feast in Cana in Galilee, and it's a remarkable miracle because basically nobody ever really knows that he did it except his mother, a few of his friends, and the master of the banquet. And even he doesn't really even know what happened. Actually, not him. No, the bridegroom is the one who knows. The master of the banquet thinks that, that the bridegroom has come up with this great wine. Do you remember? They're out of wine. Jesus creates wine to keep the party going. Is that your vision of Jesus? Do you think that Jesus works in your life to bring you joy and delight and the richest affair? Do you think that you deserve it? Well, see, here's the, here's the great thing. No, of course you don't deserve it in one level because of what you've done and how you've lived. But in the whole other way, when you understand Isaiah 53, you deserve it as much as Jesus does. That's what the gospel proclaims. That if you are in Christ by faith, 
that what he gets, you get. That's why the Bible says that we're co-heirs with Christ. So I'll say it again. You deserve the richest affair as much as Jesus does. That's pretty remarkable. Get your heart around that. Because too many Christians sort of are, you know, feel like, you know, oh, I could never expect anything good to come from God. I'm just going to have to make do with sort of a miserable life because I've screwed up so many ways and I've not really lived like he would want me to live. I've certainly not stayed in the center of his will. I hate that phrase. Um, it's not in the Bible and it's, it really is oppressive to think about that. Um, no, delight, you will delight in the richest affair because someone paid the price for that. And you actually do, how should I say this? You really, um, you may not think of it this way, and I don't think of it this way often, but for me to go to God and only ever ask for the bare minimum is to really dishonor what Jesus did on the cross. Because what Jesus did on the cross was secure this promise. And how dare we not ask him for what he's promised to give? How dare we think that we can be more spiritual than him by saying, I don't really need anything. And there's a lot of Christians that are really modern Stoics who think that the more spiritual you are, the more miserable you should be. They don't know what to do with this kind of passage. Come, buy, milk, and wine. These are luxurious gifts. These are the kinds of things that you'd be kind of embarrassed to have as a Christian in this culture because shouldn't you just sell it all and give it to the poor? No, Jesus says, I want you to delight in the richest affair and I'm going to give it to you because I deserve it and if I deserve it, you deserve it because you have my righteousness given to you. Wow. Notice, too, how... Well, I better not pass this by. I was trying to, to skip this, but I need to say something about this. Look at verse 5. It's, it's fascinating here. He talks about, you know, whenever I've told you, whenever the Bible says surely, that's God swearing an oath. That's saying, you can depend on this. Notice this. Take note of this. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. And then verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let him turn to the Lord, verse 7, right? So notice this. We get a free invitation in verses 1 and 2 and 3. Come to me. And then we get this call that you need to forsake your wicked ways and return and repent. So does God sort of offer grace freely with one hand and then sort of take it back with another hand? I know in a lot of Christian circles that's kind of the mixed message you get. Yes, grace is free, but you really better... You really better mean it when you ask for it, and you really better, you know, show God that you're really, really, really sorry. And if you cry long enough and hard enough and convince him that you're really sincere, then maybe he'll um, decide to grant you some grace. I, I think practically that's the way most Christians live, and it's the wonder that they're miserable. They think that they have to somehow deserve grace either by feeling really bad or and then in other churches by feeling really good and convincing God that they don't have any doubts at all. It's terrible. It's terrible bad theology to think that you somehow have to merit grace. Notice, notice that the gospel, repentance, is not what causes God to offer the gospel to us. 
God's character is what is the basis for the invitation. And God's work that he's done in Isaiah 53 of sending the son to take the punishment that we deserved. Look at verse 7 again. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for, or in other words, because he will freely pardon. It's not turn to him so that he will pardon. It's turn to him because his character is one who freely pardons. But again, how can he freely pardon? How can he offer you uh, this invitation that's free? And again, it's only because Jesus has already paid the cost. So the invitation that goes to us is an invitation to come to him because he is a God who, who accepts, accepts those who turn to him. You don't have to convince him to be one who pardons. It is his character, and it's already been secured in Jesus on the cross. And it's based upon that that we're invited. Now, this is is fascinating. Jesus said this, actually, in um, John chapter 12. He said it this way. When I am lifted up from the earth, in other words, on the cross, I will draw all men to myself. The Bible puts it this way all over the place. It's because of what Jesus does on the cross that we're invited and we're drawn to him. Also, there's this place um, in John Bunyan who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if any of you guys have ever read that. Great Puritan uh, pastor John Bunyan put it this way. And this is, this is a great thing to think about. Run and work, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A sweeter sound the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Now, th- th- now this is an important point. Now, wh- what is Bunyan saying there? That the law says, do this and you will live. And so there's a way to, quote-unquote, preach the gospel that really is just telling people what to do. You need to do this. You need to pray this prayer. You need to do this. And if you do it right and you really mean it, then God will change his mind about you and accept you into his kingdom. This is, this is what I thought when I first... Um, heard that God wanted to have a personal relationship with people growing up in the church I grew up in. That was a crazy idea I'd never thought of before. But I remember when I first heard somebody share, quote unquote, the gospel with me, what they basically shared was you need to do this and you need to do that. And so every night for a week, laying in my bed, I asked Jesus into my heart and I hoped that I was sincere enough. And maybe some of you, I, I know some of you, we've talked about this before, going to camps growing up, you know, and there's always the altar call. And then it's like, you know, it's always sort of the invitation, like, you know, come down and, you know, meet Jesus. Or, you know, if you're not sure that you're a Christian, well, then come do it again. And, you know, we're always sort of repenting of our repentances and recommitting our recommitments and on and on. And it's it's this sort of this vicious cycle that basically says the theology behind that is you have to do something to secure God's pardon of you. But what the Bible says is the gospel, which literally means good news, is news about something Jesus did. It's not so much instruction about what you need to do. We fundamentally turn the gospel into not gospel anymore, not good news anymore, when we tell people this is what you need to do. Now, do you need to respond? Yes, but understand how it works. Crying out to God in faith is really the first cry of the newborn baby. It's not what causes you to be born again. 
the thing that causes you to be born again is the word of God that comes with power. As it says at one place in the Psalms, that we were made willing in the day of God's power. As you see here down in verse 11, right? My word goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Isn't that an amazing verse to have after verse 1, 2, and 3? Do you, see, do you see what's going on here? The invitation goes out, but God in his power secures the response to the invitation. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is why it says in Acts 13, 48, that as many of the people who heard Paul preach that were foreordained to eternal life believed that God drew forth from them, brought to them new life. And the first evidence that they would come to new life, had been born again, was crying out to God, responding to this offer. See, here's the amazing thing. God can offer till he's blue in the face if he doesn't also send his powerful word to change our hearts of stone into a heart of flesh. And as it says in Ezekiel, to move us to obey his commands. God changes us through the hearing of his word because his word is effectual and it has power. It's, it's so important that we get this. Now, it's fascinating. Like the history of Christianity, people have really gotten mixed up about this. We sang that first hymn, Come Ye Sinners. And it's a great hymn about what the Bible teaches. The idea um, in, in the one verse is, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. In other words, don't wait to respond to the call, come you sinners. Don't wait to respond until you feel like you really deserve it, or you feel like you've really got it down, or you've kind of fixed your life sufficiently. Right? Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. If you're ever thinking that you're going to be fit to come to Jesus, it's just a... It's just a vain imagination, right? All the fitness, it says, he requires is to feel your need of him. And then this last line, which was in the original, this he gives you, this he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam. What is Joseph Hart saying in this hymn? He's saying what Isaiah is saying here in Isaiah 55. Come, all you who have no money. The word of God will not come back void. That call when it goes out will result in people coming to faith. This is what theologians call effectual calling. And, and, and Joseph Hart understands this. What you need is to feel your need of him. But even that you have to be given as a gift. Even that must be given to you. And he gives it to you. How? The Spirit's rising beam. In other words, the Spirit gives you a life-giving ray, as it were, that comes into your heart and creates new life in you and opens your eyes to see the beauty of Jesus and woos you and draws you to him. It's not a compulsive kind of thing. It's opening your eyes to see reality that you've never seen before. I mean, do you see here how it says in verse 5, 
that he's endowed you with splendor, talking about Jesus, the Messiah. And yet the thing is, you don't see him. Do you remember in Isaiah 53? It said he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. And yet he is endowed with splendor. But it's the kind of splendor that unless you have the eyes of faith, you'll never see it. To look at Jesus on the cross and see that as beautiful takes the eyes of faith. Everybody that saw it without the eyes of faith saw him as a man who was cursed of God, who couldn't possibly be God's hope and God's answer. So what's going on here, right, is the the, the older understanding of the gospel, the biblical understanding of the gospel, is that what you need, what you need, the gospel gives you. That's Bunyan's thing. A sweeter sound the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Now, in the early 1800s, there was a real shift theologically in how people understood things like revival and the gospel. And one of the things that happened to this hymn is that last line got cut out. And probably some of you have grown up in traditions, I'm sure you have, because I know some of the denominations you grew up in, that if you look at your denominational hymnal, you'll find come ye sinners with the last line of each verse taken away, and instead a chorus inserted that says, I will rise and go to Jesus. You ever sang it that way? Yeah. All right. They cut out the gospel part of the hymn. They basically turn the hymn into, this is what you need, and then you get to say, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to rise and go to Jesus. Do you understand that while that may sound good, that's not the gospel? The gospel is what you need, God gives you. And if that's not true, you have no hope at all. You have no hope at all because you need so much more than instruction. You need so much more than God just telling you what you need to do. You need God to change your basic nature. And that's what he does, right? That's what he does. All right, consider the nature of the one who offers. I know I've got I to move fast here, and I will. The, an offer is only as good as the one who offers it. Can he deliver? Does he have the power to do what he wants and intends? Is he trustworthy? And here's the point to get here. In the gospel, the nature of the one who offers guarantees the offer. God's character revealed is vital for us to have faith in his promises. God's character revealed is vital for us to have faith in his promises. I loved how Fanny Crosby um, got that in this hymn that we sang, O Heart Bereaved. And lonely, verse 2, cling to thy Redeemer, thy Savior, brother, friend. Believe and trust his promise to keep you till the end. Believe and trust whose promise? The who is totally necessary. It's not just believe this promise. I know there's some you know, TV preachers that think that it's the believing itself that changes reality. The word of faith movement, all this nonsense. Heresy. No, it's the nature of the one who promises That is absolutely vital. Who is the one who makes the promise here? First of all, it's the God who speaks. Now I know that in the textbook that most of you guys use in Old Testament, because I've read it, it says that the Old Testament is a record of what God did and what men thought about it. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It is. 
The Bible claims something very different about itself. And the difference is hugely important. The Bible says that it is God's interpretation of what he did. That we're not just free to make up whatever we want about what God has done. You're not free to think what you want about Jesus and somebody else can think, oh, I guess you're free, you're not going to get thrown in jail. But you may not get into heaven. (laughs) It's vital that you understand and accept what God says his deeds mean. Understand that God is the one who speaks. He doesn't just act, he speaks. He speaks propositional revelation that is true. He comes and he speaks to us and he says, come to me. Not only is he the one who speaks, but he's powerful and he gets what he wants, right? Now, there's, there's a, an interesting thing here to see. At the end of verse 5, it says that, um, that, that Jesus is, well, let me explain this. Because I think there's a little confusing thing here in verse 3. And it's the punctuation that makes it con- confusing. I think there's, there's sort of a stop there at, at the end of that first sentence. Give ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live. Stop. And then God issues a promise to Jesus. And we get to hear it. In other words, the, the invitation is come and listen. And then starting in the second half of verse 3 is what we're to listen to. God the Father saying to God the Son, I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The reason you see this in the Hebrew is that you, in making an everlasting covenant with you, is singular. It shifts from being plural, addressing all of us and all people, to God speaking directly to Jesus. Saying, I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. And then it talks about making him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commandment of the peoples. It says that he will summon nations and nations that do not know you will hasten to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Right? The reason that people come to him is because he's endowed with splendor. And the reason that we see it is because God's word is effectual and it opens our eyes. It opens our eyes. Not only that, he's merciful, right? Let us turn to the Lord. He will have mercy on us. He's merciful. Not only that, he's the promise-making, covenant-keeping God. See, in verse 3, he's saying, Listen to this good news that I have. Life-giving news. Give ear to this life-giving news. I will make an everlasting covenant with Jesus. Now, what what does that mean? It means that Christ secures the promise of God. He keeps everything that the covenant required. And we get credit for it by our faith in him. Right? Move on here. Look at the nature of what is offered. I said this already. We get rich fare, not bare sustenance. But here's what I want you to see that's even more amazing. God himself is our feast. It's fascinating here. It talks here about come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And then it changes in verse 3 to listen that you may live. It goes from eat 
that you may live, in verse 1 and 2, to listen. And listen to what? Listen in particular to God's promise. But what's fascinating is that the New Testament and Jesus himself takes this, these words and these ideas and he applies them to himself. Jesus very consciously takes this passage to himself where God says, I'm going to give you the richest affair. And then in verse 3, helps you understand a little bit more about how that's going to happen. It's going to be by listening. So it's going to come through the word. And then Jesus comes and says, no, it's really talking about me. Listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 4, verse 13. Everyone who drinks this water, talking about the water that he will give, will be thirsty again. Sorry, the water that, that the world gives will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give you will never thirst. John 6, 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. A little later in that same chapter, verse 53 of John 6, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. So Jesus is saying that what God is promising through Isaiah, the richest affair, is in fact me. And what it means to delight in the richest affair ultimately means to feast on God himself. How do you do that? Well, later in John's gospel, Jesus equates abiding in him with abiding in his word, right? Here in John 6, he talks about whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me or abides in me. But then later in in the whole sort of long section, 14, 15, 16, this whole section of John, he talks about remaining in him and abiding in him means abiding in his word. What do we, what do we get from all this? Here's, here's what we get from this. We're to feed on the Lord Jesus by faith when we read the word, when we partake of the sacraments. Why and how? What does that mean? It means that faith feeds on the promises of God. And as Paul says, all of the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ. That when we read the Bible, we are to feed on Jesus by faith. To derive real nourishment from seeing who he is and what he does and what he says. That when we partake of the sacraments, do you understand when you take the Lord's Supper, what you are doing is you are partaking of the promise of God, the gospel preached in a picture. The gospel is, in its essence, A promise that's been fulfilled. It's news of a promise that's been fulfilled. And faith feeds on the promises. I think the reason that so many Christians get burned out and are miserable is because when they read the Bible, when they go to church, they're thinking about it as their duty and the thing that they need to do, either for themselves or for God. 
but they don't understand that what it's really about is about feasting on Jesus and delighting in the richest affair. That you have the opportunity to feed on Jesus by faith. And it's a feeding that changes us. Look at the end of this passage. You see verse 13? What does verse 13 sound like to you? I'll tell you what it is. It's a picture of the reversal of the curse. Do you remember what happened when sin entered the world? What happened to the ground? Thorns and briars. But God is promising through his word and through the one who will be the covenant, Jesus himself, through feeding on him, through delighting in this richest affair, it will change us, but it will also change everything. And instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. Do you understand? Come and feast on Jesus and whet your appetite for the feast that you're going to celebrate for all eternity. A feast that is going to involve the whole creation being made new again. So I asked you, going back to the very beginning as we close, what kind of bread are you working for? I mean, it's not just enough to be working for bread that spoils in this life. But do you understand what Jesus is offering us isn't just better in this life, though it is better even in this life. But it's so much greater than what you could ever hope for after this life. You're invited to take part in something that is going to set everything to rights. I mean, why do we spend so much of our time and our energy and our gifts trying to to work for people's approval or, or just for better grades which is hopefully, you know, I guess maybe a way to make more money someday. You know, what is it we're working for? What are you killing yourself for? You already have a much better meal laid out before you for free. And isn't that the heart always of the gospel? The gospel is always coming to us and saying, look, what you're trying to get through your own power and your own strength, number one, it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. The only reason you think it satisfies is because you've killed your heart and your desires and you've tried to make yourself content. But, but, but begin to get a whiff of what he's offering and let, let the saliva start flowing. You were made for so much more. You were made for the richest affair, right? And here it is. Why are you laboring over here when this beautiful, bountiful feast, Jesus and him crucified, is laid out before you, right? Let's pray.